You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This will be your host, Abraham. And I'm your co-host, Shane. And so today we have a very special episode on politics, if you will. And I think it's just worth describing sort of what we're doing and why with these. And so we're going to be doing a series of episodes in which we're going to interview sort of everyday people who have aligned themselves with a particular political party. And we chose the four largest political parties by voting body in the United States, which is Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, and Green Party. And we wanted to just ask, why are you, why are you that thing? Right? Why do you vote? Why you vote? Exactly. Or how you vote. Yeah, that's what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we thought it'd be really interesting to just sort of get your sort of average citizen and sit them down for a discussion where we ask them, what, what makes you passionate about the party that you've aligned yourself with? And although we are going to be releasing the episode you'll hear today, which is an interview with a Democrat, they'll all be forthcoming. We'll have Republican, Libertarian, Green Party, and we'll be asking them similar questions, really just trying to have a conversation about what makes you passionate. And I also want to make sure that we preface this by saying one of the rules we had going into this is we're not going to talk about particular candidates. We really are only going to talk about some of the issues and the sort of philosophy, the assumptions, the values that those people carry with them when they're making the decision to vote the way that they vote. Yeah. And also we wanted to kind of explore how people got there. I mean, you know, when we start talking about this and we, we spend a lot of time talking about learning history and, and the idea of, of experiences shaping up human behavior, it shapes up ideas too. And so when we were going into this, the idea was to get an understanding of not only, you know, what some of the values and viewpoints might be for somebody that shares that political ideology, but also how they arrive to those conclusions and how they propose solutions for those different challenges that they come across. Because as you'll see in some of the interviews that people are not inherently evil for aligning with one side of the spectrum or another. People all want similar things or at least things that are going to be a benefit to them in the community that they that they serve in. And so when we when we really dug into this, our goal was to just get an understanding without judgment, without any sort of misleading information, misleading questions. We just wanted to know a little bit about these people and where they came from. Yeah. And we do try and play a little bit of devil's advocate in these interviews sort of challenge. Like, you know, someone who disagrees with you might say, and then list what that disagreement might be. But it has been really interesting already to see how often, I guess how unique everybody is. And, and I think that's, you look at someone who is, a Trump supporter or a Biden supporter, and you automatically have these assumptions about who they are and what their values are and what they automatically agree with, with their platform. And it's just not consistently the case. I think if you look at any one person, there will be certain things that they say, yes, I'm 100% behind that. But there's actually quite a few things where they say, actually, no, I really don't agree with that. This is where I, I lean the other direction. And you get to see how complicated and individual everybody is. And it brings a level of humanity that I think is desperately needed in these times to really understand the different perspectives. 
we're hoping that this serves as a model for anybody out there who is struggling with having political discussions and having, because everything is so emotionally charged right now. People are not being kind to one another. It happens every political season. People are real quick to make overgeneralizations. And so hopefully this serves as a model to take the time to talk to somebody and to listen to their viewpoint and have a constructive discussion about where to go next, because not everybody has the answer. And we see that. You see that in the interviews. Not everybody has the answer for every single political issue that does come up and that, that does arise. And we see that it's larger than singular actions. It's, you know, it's systems, it's entire governments, it's entire nations that are contributing to different political challenges. So hopefully this is the model for you to take a second to kind of check your bias, take a step back and actually listen to somebody else who may not agree with what you have to say. And I would say, don't take anything that we say as an endorsement of their position in any of these. We're really just trying to have a discussion with them that allows it to be an open, safe place to have that discussion. And after our final interview, what we will do is we will sort of take a moment with just Shane and I, and we are going to talk about what it's been like to go through this process with these different interviewees. But you know this. This is going to be the first of the uh, in the series of episodes. We're going to release one every week for the entire rest of the month of September, in anticipation of this election. And like I said, we're just going to have these people just talk about them. You know what their feelings are, and and I think there's something really interesting to be learned here. Yep. I mean, we think it's timely. It's important, and just a human touch is sorely needed in politics today. All right. So let's go ahead and then and go to our interview. We asked someone to come on who identified as a Democrat. This will be the first one in the four. So let's go ahead and go to this interview now. And thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. I'm sure that if you are not a Democrat, you'll get all fired up and have something to say. Yeah. And you'll you'll be pleased to listen to our, our future episodes, I hope. Yeah. Save it for the other ones. Yeah. So if you're a Republican, then you'll maybe you'll feel a happier when you get to listen to the Republican episode, Libertarian, Libertarian episode, and Green Party, Green Party episode, or Maybe you're somewhere off that spectrum entirely and you'll disagree with all of them. Either way, I think this is going to be a fun ride. Yep. Yep. We're strapped in. All right. Let's get to it then. All right. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. We are going to be interviewing with a special guest. She's going by Titus. And so thank you for being here. And let's just start with jumping right into what we're talking about, which is why you are a Democrat what about the that party aligns with your particular values? All right. I am a member of the Democratic Party. I tend to be on the more of the liberal side of the Democratic Party because right now I think it's pretty obvious there's two wings of the Democratic Party. One that tends to be the more centrist and the other side that tends to like more Bernie Sanders AOC. I tend to identify more with the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wing of the party. And the reason I do that is because I see so much social and economic injustice in the world. And it's something that needs to be corrected. And the best way to do that is to work within the system to elect more liberal candidates. And with the gerrymandering that's going on, it's much easier to get uh, more liberal candidates in certain districts because those districts tend to go Democratic because of the way the system is gerrymandered where each district tends to already have a pre-designed party winner thus creating more liberal and conservative districts rather than leaving a solid middle that's fair so i'm curious have you always been a democrat or sort of when did you get involved with the party most of my life i've been a member of the democratic party uh, when i was younger i did flirt a little bit with the green party but the the issue with the green party is there's a few things i don't 
agree with on the Green, Green Party platform. They're a little too far left economically, and they also don't really have a uh, strong foothold anywhere. I mean, the Green Party would be a great competitor if we got rid of the winner-takes-all system that practically forces us into a two-party system. And I think they would be a great le a left competitor. But I just don't think that they have realistically have the clout until we change that system, which is something I'm actually in favor of, even though I don't consider myself a member of the Green Party. I just feel like we need more competition and more choices. Are you talking like ranked choice voting? Ranked choice voting would be an option or one where you divide the uh, electoral votes based on the percentage of the votes given. So if you cast a vote for, if you got somebody who's like, well, I would vote green, but they're never going to get the votes. You'd say like, well, the Green Party got 10% of the votes, they get 10% of the electoral votes. And they could get maybe like 10% of the seats in Congress, which would give them at least some sort of influence and say, which would encourage more moderation rather than trying to create the system where the extremists tend to win. Okay, so it, it seems like voting kind of has its own is its own political issue and the right to vote and who should vote and and voter suppression can you speak a little bit to that then sort of voting as a political issue i feel voting is a moral issue as much as it is a political issue because we have so much suffering going on in the world that you can't just turn a blind eye to it we can disagree as to how to fix that suffering and what to do but to merely not vote is a problem. You can say like, yeah, my vote won't matter much in the presidential election because I'm out here in California, but there's so many other down ballot races, so many other propositions that could impact day-to-day -day lives for people where you should at least take the opportunity to be informed on those issues, look at your congressional, your Senate races, because not every day-to-day -day decision is made by the president. In fact, that's a common misconception. So in that regard, can I talk about, because we've talked about this a lot where voting is definitely an issue and the issue of voting comes up quite a bit where people are like, I'm voting for this person and voting not for this person. Or you'll hear people say, I don't want to vote because I don't think this person is a good candidate. To me, that sounds like an issue where it becomes like an identity politics issue, right? Where people are going like, I'm voting along these lines no matter what, instead of saying I'm voting along these lines because I believe in these values. And, that, and that's actually part of why we wanted to interview people is like, like looking at the values of these folks. So so when you look at voting from that perspective, what kind of issues do you see in terms of, do you find people that are voting along those lines without understanding what they're voting for? Like maybe they're voting along those lines of identity politics and not really getting to the core of like what their values or their beliefs actually are? I think that that's a easier question put than answered because identity politics, your identity can fuel what your political beliefs are. For instance, you take a look at the Black Lives Matter movement. You've got people who are living in a system that oppresses them and to vote in a, in a way that says, hey, I don't want to be oppressed anymore is both a political statement, but it's also based on identity politics. So it's not a simple thing of, oh, I'm voting based on my identity more than I'm voting based on my political beliefs. And it's another common misconception that, oh, by voting for this candidate, I agree with everything they're voting for. There's no way we can actually get that, especially in a two party system that way we have here. No candidate is going to fill every one of your boxes. Even though I'm part of the, consider myself part of the left wing of the Democratic Party, I'm still going to disagree with Bernie Sanders and Alexander Ocasio-Cortez every once in a while. It's just not realistic to have a candidate who encompasses every single one of your values. 
So you have to pick the candidate that's the best one. Some people go based off what their socioeconomic or racial identity is. It's determined the best fit. And some people go, okay, these are the political issues. Maybe my social identity isn't the best one. Maybe it's my fiscal identity. But you have to identify what your issue is or issues are that are most important to you. And that's why voting isn't just a political issue. It's a moral issue as well. Do you think that people have a hard time identifying what their actual issue is? They can if they're persuaded by hatred and bigotry. Yeah. I mean, hatred and bigotry could be their issue. Don't get me wrong. But if you're deciding based on, I don't want my tax dollars to support this particular person. And that forgets like the whole idea of what a tax is supposed to be about. Uh, this is where I get a little bit more into socialism, but that's why democratic socialist, but our tax dollars support the fire department. Nobody says, gee, I don't want to support the fire department putting out this other guy's house. But yet we do that with like healthcare. We do that with education. And it's not really a fair system to say, Oh, uh, living isn't really a natural human right because I don't want to pay for somebody else to live. To me, it's morally repugnant to take that kind of stance. And that's part of the reason I can't vote for people who are trying to get away with the pre-existing conditions. To me, it's all about taking care of people first. And if you take care of people and give everyone a baseline that's got health and a roof over your head where you can earn a living wage, then let economics do what they can. I don't think that we have to have a purely equal or equitable society, but we do have to have one where people can get a roof over their head, all their basic utilities, and have their own private place to live if they are working full time. You shouldn't have to say, like, this job should keep you in poverty. This is a mick job or whatever. Something you said in there I was kind of wanted to follow up on, which was identifying with sort of a socialist policy or socialist agendas. Do you see that as being sort of synonymous with your political views? I consider myself more of a democratic socialist. I think there needs to be a certain baseline of socialism that goes back to taking care of people and getting a stronger safety net with like the Green New Deal. But I'm not an absolute socialist where I feel like there should be a distinction still for hard work, but you should be able to provide all your food on the table and your health. Just if you're working any full-time job, that should happen. We shouldn't be subsidizing people who work at Walmart by giving food stamps. No, Walmart should be paying their workers a living wage. And the fact that Walmart isn't doing that, um, Walmart and Amazon aren't doing that, that's kind of us subsidizing the corporations rather than subsidizing the people. And the government should work to take care of people before it should take care of business. So I'm kind of curious if you sat down and sort of enumerated what your values are, what, what would you say are the things that, or how would you describe your values? The most important thing would be taking care of people first. I've seen so much suffering and it's only going to get worse with this economic crisis that the first things we should be doing are providing a living wage and providing universal health care. Those would be the two biggest issues. Right up in that issue is fixing the racial injustice in this country with both the uh, immigration issues and the uh, ra uh, racial justice issues because we're having two separate justice systems, whether you're white or whether you're non-white. More accurately, it's probably whether you have money or whether you don't have money, but most of the money tends to be focused in the hands of white people due to years of systemic oppression. And it's not just something where you can say, well, gee, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, it, gee, that means if one side has bootstraps and the other has to scramble to find bootstraps, 
it's much harder to pull yourself up by something you don't have. There was a uh, interesting piece that I read. I don't, I can't quote it directly, but it talked about the high price of being poor, and it compared price of buying shoes. It's the price of the shoes isn't what's important, but you can either spend twenty-five dollars to buy shoes that'll last you five years, or ten dollars that'll buy shoes that'll buy you one year. The poor person can only afford the $10 shoes, but they wind up paying more over time because the shoes degrade faster than the person who can actually afford to buy the $25 shoes. And there's a certain economic cost to being poor that I think that's commonly overlooked. But if we had people with a living wage, then we might not have such a situation with that, with the cost of everything trapping people in poverty. Yeah, I believe the same argument gets made about healthcare too, right? Like, so like regular checkups, if you can't afford the regular checkup, it might cost you later because you have a, an ailment that was, that could have been prevented or treated early on. I think that's part of why Obama included preventative care as something every single insurance policy had to cover for free. Because even with government covered insurance plans, the government doesn't want to pay for things that could have been prevented as well. And the government subsidizes certain health care programs, so they want those to be covered. And they want the private sector to have to cover the same thing. Everything covering preventative care when you want to drive the cost down is a good thing because you're preventing problems from becoming worse. Much like you get an oil change on your car, you do that so your car engine doesn't break down. And that's a preventative maintenance, and it's much cheaper than having the engine break down, much like the human body works much the same way. You get that checkup, you get those bl a blood test done if the doctor's concerned you might have diabetes, because you don't want to be stuck in the hospital with the complication of diabetes if you could have fixed it, or at least managed it. I wanted to come back to this question of sort of where you how you came into this, this viewpoint, because a lot of people just sort of follow in line with their parents. And I was wondering if that was the case for you or sort of how you found yourself in alignment with these issues. Well, uh, my parents, I had both a, my father was more Republican leaning. My mother is more Democratic leaning, just to simplify it. That's not absolutes, obviously. But they raised my brother and I with the ability to think for ourselves and make our own political decisions. And they didn't care what our political outcome was, as long as it was well-reasoned and based in evidence rather than based on just pure gut feeling. The reason I tended to be more towards the left is because I saw the injustices that came about when we just pretended that the social injustices weren't there. Because we, if we pretend that everyone has the same opportunity, then we, it ignores a lot of the issues in society because I see people working hard every day and getting further and further behind. And that's just not right for society. Society should reward you for the work that you do. But right now, the system isn't set up like that. And that's why I feel like we need to have that minimum social safety net. That way, people who then turn around and work harder can actually reap the benefits of it rather than looking at this and going, well, gee, you should just get a better job. Well, how can you get a better job if your only job source of income doesn't give you any notice? And doesn't really give you an opportunity to interview for a better job. And you can't quit your job because you're not going to be able to have a roof over your head. It's something that makes it much harder to work and get ahead in life. Especially when you've got student loans due and you're 
work in a retail job because there's no other real jobs in the economy. Well, gee, get a second job. Well, how are you supposed to get a second job when your job gives you notice what shifts you're going to be working 24 hours before? How are you supposed to interview? How are you supposed to actually line up two jobs? You, you can't do it. I want to come back to something that you just said, but something that occurred to me earlier that I think is sort of a theme running throughout this is the distinction between where the help sort of comes from. And you had said, we all sort of agree we want people to be able to live, or at least we, we believe that everybody across whatever political party believes that everybody has sort of the right to, to live and live, you know, at least comfortably enough to survive. And the solution that it seems like you are on the side of is that that support should come from the government. Is that correct? As a practical matter, yes. As a theoretical matter, that should be coming from the companies themselves. However, there's not enough labor to actually force the companies to actually pay a living wage. And that's why the government needs to step in, is because the private market won't do it. Because it's not like people can say, okay, I'll starve, I won't take this bullshit job. It's not something where the free market can actually regulate itself. That's why the government has to step in. That's the same reason why it needs to step in with healthcare. Because people can't turn say that, gee, I want to die rather than taking on this healthcare debt. A lot of people can't say that, particularly if they've got people who depend on them. And it's not fair to say like, well, gee, you're rich enough. You've got the Cadillac insurance plan. You're the one who gets to live while the other guy has to die or be condemned to poverty forever because he had to take care of his kids. It's not a fair situation at all, and people shouldn't be valued based on how much money there is in their bank account. And the fact is, labor does not have enough organizing power to demand a fair wage. That's why we got the minimum wage in the first place, is because labor doesn't have the legs to stand on right now, and we need to fix that. And the government seems to be the only other option if the free market can't do it. It seems like I think the argument you might hear from the other sides, uh, <laughs> plural, from other people, I'm just trying to think of sort of being in the devil's advocate position, is that the free market could take care of these issues, but the government has actually gotten the way of them being able to do sort of the humanitarian thing and, and support people. I'm wondering if you have a response to to that as a criticism in terms of like, what do you think that that's true or not true? And if so, like... Why would it be in a better position to have the government take on that responsibility, at least in terms of policies that might influence businesses to have to conform to the, those values? Does that make sense? Ideally, I think that those people in a perfect world would be right, that the free market would handle it. The problem is companies are nearly exclusively incentivized, especially larger companies who can control how much labor is worth, are focused just based on price per share for their shareholders. And that drives the incentive to bring labor costs down. The only time labor costs come up are as if somebody needs so-called a higher quality worker, where it's more expensive to train the worker than it is to fire somebody and hire somebody new. It's only when there's an expense to the company where you actually get higher wages. There isn't much competition coming from the labor side of the market. And when that power imbalance is there, then labor can't negotiate for itself. That's why I think labor unions have a purpose in the private sector, even though they've largely been gutted, 
is because labor can get together as a collective and say, no, we won't take this wage. We can stand together and stand firm to enforce a higher living wage. That's why jobs with labor unions tend to get paid more. It's not taking anybody out of business by having labor being able to organize. But you can't say on the one hand, I don't want labor unions because they're killing things. And then say the free market can take care of itself because labor unions are the way that the market can work. Well, I think especially with the example that you brought up of these larger organizations that do have the infrastructure and the ability to pay a higher labor and don't, like you brought up Walmart and Amazon as two examples of of these larger organizations that simply don't offer that adequate living wage for folks that are working, right? So like then that's where government subsidies come in, like you mentioned, and support and bolster that, whereas a labor union might be a solution to fix that wage issue. It would be, but the problem is that companies like Walmart deliberately use union vesting tactics in order to ensure their their workers don't unionize. Uh, One of the places that had successfully uh, organized, I believe it was in Canada, but don't quote me on it, shut down their store right when the uh, labor succeeded. There was a, a documentary done on Walmart. There's probably been a few documentaries done on Walmart where they talked about the attempts to unionize the Walmart workers and they, they fail because Walmart does underhanded nefarious things to make sure that those union, union workers fail because they don't want to pay the workers a living wage, even though it would cost them almost next to nothing to pay them a living wage. It costs something like $2 on a pair of socks. Don't, again, don't quote me on that, but it was something trivial where they could pay their workers a living wage. But the, the Walmart just elects not to do it. Some of the criticism I've heard about unions, and not to say that I agree with any of this, but again, trying to sort of just further elaborate on why one might be in support of unions in this case. One of the criticisms of unions might be that they protect lazy workers or people who do things that are inappropriate or even nefarious, you know, because the union will prevent them from being fired. And they also can prevent policy changes that might be really necessary. So I've heard of like police unions basically saying, you know, if they tried to reform a police department, then the union would step in and be like, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. And so I'm kind of curious how you might respond to that criticism of unions. Well, I do think that the, the criticism on unions, particularly with the police department, is an appropriate criticism of the union. Unions aren't perfect because anytime where you get people trying to get together and set a certain price and a certain role is not going to create a perfect situation because they can't anticipate every situation in advance. The unions are, for lack of a better word, out of control when they have so much power politically that they can change the rules to exempt themselves from common human decency. And that becomes more of a political issue rather than a actual union issue because unions naturally have that dissent that drawback that says okay we're going to provide the oversight on this union and when that oversight ceases to exist the union gets too powerful the teachers let's compare the teachers union with the police union the teachers union has that natural oversight that pushback that pushback against it and that's why teacher salaries aren't out of control That's why you're not seeing bad teachers for the most part being kept in classrooms. But then you get the police unions, which basically endorse the hardest line DAs who 
endorse people who won't prosecute cops, who basically the police department has an undue influence in politics. And because they have an undue influence in politics and in the media, it creates perverse disincentives. And that does need to be changed. I don't know how to change the particular issue of police union, but I do think that a lot of the gripes against the police unions are accurate. And we don't have a, a system that keeps those unions accountable while uh, most other unions tend to work relatively well, it's just police unions tend to be example of a bad union that needs to be changed. I was wondering to sort of switching pace, switching gears a little bit to some other issues and how they might, and just how you might speak to them is sort of what you see as the role of taxes and I guess just what you would be in support of with respect to taxes. Okay. Taxes should be providing for the common good. Taxes should not provide for tax breaks to incentivize companies to do things because that's the government trying to pick winners and losers in the free market, which is where I tend to be a little more to the right, ironically, because the free market should decide whether the uh, things should succeed or fail. And the taxes should go for more socialist goods like protection and defense, like health care police, roads, that's where the taxes should go. And taxes should be paid based upon the income and how much you can afford to pay. And if we have a living wage, then everyone can contribute a little bit in order to share like, hey, yeah, everyone's contributing. We have that societal contract because everyone's getting paid a living wage. Everyone's putting a little bit into this society that creates that societal contract that stays together because when that societal contract doesn't stay together, we get protests uh, like the Black Lives Matter movement because that societal contract is broken down because we have so many people who aren't getting the living wages because they are, they're paying taxes and they're not getting the rewards back from it. For instance, sales tax, that's a very regressive tax because rich people can hoard their money and not, have to pay as much in sales tax, but you've got people who have to spend a lot of day-to-day -day purchases because they're poor and they pay more in sales tax because they're having to pay more transactions and use more of their income as a purpose of sales. So if not for sales tax, where should taxes come from? Taxes should come from income tax. I'm not a big fan of the property tax, although I understand that that's currently how we fund schools in our society should largely be based on an income and a wealth tax, which is different than a property tax. A property tax is saying like, okay, you've earned this. You're not using it as an investment vehicle. Well, property taxes on like second, third homes, I get that, but they shouldn't be used to fund school districts. Property taxes should be just used as a general collective and then distributed. Same with income taxes. And it shouldn't matter the income of your zip code, the quality of type of schools that you have, because it creates intergenerational wealth issues. There are a lot of different ways that taxes are often applied and sort of other areas. And I just, I don't know if it's worth listing all the different types of taxes there are, but I did want to ask really quick about your thoughts on tariffs. Tariffs. I'm not a big fan of tariffs. I'm not as educated on tariffs as I would like to be. However, tariffs, I get tariffs uh, the idea of tariffs. If somebody is using uh, subhuman wages to say, Hey, we're going to tariff your goods to make them cost as much here as if you were paying your laborers full wage. And then if you pay your workers an actual living wage for whatever it is that your area of the world is, 
then we'll get rid of the tariffs. If you have the idea behind a tariff that says, okay, if you do not engage in this particular behavior that disincentivizes workers, then I understand a tariff. I don't understand a tariff to act as a protectionist mechanism against just to try to protect American jobs because that doesn't protect American jobs. It causes the other side to go, okay, you're issuing a tariff. We're issuing a tariff on your goods. And it just creates this retaliatory situation. And that doesn't get anybody anywhere. If And tariffs work better if multiple countries get together and say, hey, we don't like your labor practices. We're going to tariff you until you comply with it, much like an economic sanction. A tariff works much better like that rather than something where it's based on the political whims of the leader. I'm not sure how much people know that tariffs are a tax on the country that imposes the tariffs. So if in America we impose tariffs on some imported good, that means we're paying taxes on those goods, not the people who are importing them into our country. I'm not sure if other if people know that. I'm not saying that you didn't, but I just figure I don't, I don't know how well understood that is. In a way, that's true. But the idea is that by having the tariff, it disincentivizes buying those products and importing them in the first place. Right. So if you're not importing as much from the slave labor country, which you know I'm not going to list specific one, it's more the concept, you're not importing it, you're not paying the tax either, and you're going to get more jobs that actually pay a living wage if people actually need the product and it can be profitable without the slave labor wages. It sort of seems like there's there's sort of two ways to go about it. The tariffs are sort of a try and punish you into buying from other sources or, or buying within the country versus the pay people more for the work that they do in your country, which might cost the same or maybe maybe more, maybe less, whatever. But you'd get the same sort of effect if people were making the same amount of money by, by building them within, by manufacturing that same good within the country. Does that, does that make sense? It does, but there's a slight problem with what free market well, capitalists would come around and say. Like, our wages have to be so low because we have to compete with these slave labor countries. So we, we're basically losing our shirts for providing manufacturing jobs here. Why would we do that? Why don't we just pay these slave labor countries? And, oh, by the way, because we're making the income over there, we don't have to pay American income taxes. And it just creates a perverse incentive without some sort of government regulation to basically have manufacturing jobs leave the country unless you get some sort of political stunt that keeps the jobs here for a little while i mean you know that maybe we do need a tariff i don't know what the solution is to that that kind of leads me to another topic which is generally speaking what your opinion is on what the u.s government's role should be in international politics again it's totally your opinion you know, you said you're registered as Democrat. That doesn't mean that you necessarily reflect all of the Democratic Party, but just, you know, in your opinion, what, what's your thought on that? Well, there's two things that you'd have to consider. One is international war, politics, government regime, and then there's the economic, do we provide world relief? How do we ensure that the world's a better place for people generally? And sometimes they intersect with each other. America's job should be a moral leader, which we've lost sight of that. And it's been a gradual decrease in being that moral leader to say, hey, we represent freedom. We protect the freedom of our own. And we show that model of freedom and equity and broadcast that to the world. And that helps both 
socially say like, okay, we want to be like America. And politically, when we try to exert our influence and our culture in other places in the world. But when we do things internally that say, hey, our society isn't equitable and there's certain people who get treated better than others, it weakens our standing in the world. Being a superpower is not just about how much weapons you have. It's about your moral leadership as well. And we have the weapon capability of being a superpower, but we still see our influence declining in the world because of the certain sect of the population that says America first. That forgets that our relationships are part of who we are, just like in our day to day lives. The person who says me first doesn't going to have that many friends is going to be lonely and it's going to be miserable. It's they're not going to be widely regarded as someone with influence. And that happens true on the world stage. Our influence is greatly weakened because we're doing things like pulling out of the World Health Organization. We're discrediting our own CDC because we're looking at what helps me first as an individual versus a collectivist society. And I think that's one of the biggest separations between the Democrat and Green parties versus the Republican and the Libertarian parties is more of a me first versus an us first. That's one thing that I was going to ask about is like when you start, because I think that's one of the things that when you get into debates about politics or whenever anybody comes to the table about having these discussions, political ideologies tend to start with this idea of like, this is my team, this is my team, but like there are specific values related to these groups and to different political ideologies that I think are important. And I think you just pointed out a really important one, just understanding that the perspective on helping people or the perspective on nationalism specifically is a defining characteristic of Democratic, Republican, Libertarian, Green parties, whatever that might be, whatever that political standing might be. Having that ability to say, this is where our priority should be, I think is a defining characteristic. And so it's not me first, it's me too, right? Like it's all of us together in this. It's us first, us together versus, you know, the United States first. And I think that is a, a pretty clear defining feature of some political parties that are out there. I agree. And we can take a look at, there is a little bit of collectivism in the Republican versus the Libertarian Party. The Democratic Party, which tends to be okay, mostly we're all in this together, but we want some room for individual expression to actually create an economic system that has merit behind it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, on some level, do you think that regardless of political affiliation, that for the most part, when people come to the table with political discussions, like for folks who are really invested in political ideology and like really invested in like societal change related to their political ideology do you think when people come to the table they're trying to say the same thing but just coming at it from a different perspective or coming at it with different solutions even though maybe they do want some of the same things or most of the same things like they want people to be well they want people to prosper they want their their country or their communities to do well i mean do you feel like for the most part everybody's saying the same thing but just saying it in a different language somewhat yes somewhat no i do think everyone has the idea that everyone should be able to prosper but there are some people who think well no if you're lazy you should starve and the problem is with that particular approach is they define lazy as the people who aren't them and they define lazy as what their perception of a job is rather than what actually is lazy and it's hard to create that objective 
situation of being lazy versus being a hard worker. It's hard to say like, well, this person's working hard as a fast food worker and this person's working hard as a CEO. Yeah. Okay. They're both putting in this many hours a day at work. They're both trying to provide for their families. Why is the CEO's work considered 400 times greater than the guy at the fast food restaurant when the guy at the fast food restaurant not only has to work, but he has to figure out how he's going to survive on an income that isn't providing a living wage. It's a different type of work. It's not that one's lazy and the other isn't, but that's a drawback. And it's hard to create a pure meritocratic society with that type of background. Uh, a lot of us have the same idea in America, we should be a mer meritocratic society. But actually getting there is something where we have trouble doing that. And like, should we have a safety net or should we just be a pure meritocratic society? Democrats and Green Party say a living wage should be the floor. And Democrats can say like, well, let the chips fall where they may once you get that living wage. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is, again, sorry to switch gears again, but I kind of want to get your opinion on Supreme Court justices, the SCOTUS and whatnot, of having sort of liberal and conservative Supreme Court justices and your thoughts on that. Okay, that's a bit of a harder question because I actually went to law school and you wind up studying a lot of justices' opinions. And not everything is 5-4, although there's been a lot of 5-4 decisions. There's a lot of jurisprudence, which I'm I can't get into, so this is going to be a very oversimplified answer. Justices all bring their biases to the bench, and the way justices are selected is right now the each party wants to try to get at the biases of each particular judge to try to ensure that the justice will vote the way it is they want them to vote. There are things, however, that constrain justices. For instance, stare decisis, which means if it's already been decided that way before, in general, it should continue to be decided the same way rather than having a new justice all of a sudden the law changes that's not correct however if a law shows to be untenable it can change so if we're looking at things like abortion coming through the supreme court there is a push to say like well this whole right to abortion which is how they would phrase it is untenable because it really you can't regulate it we've tried to see the regulations and they, they fail because they keep getting challenged in the court. But that's a little bit more complicated because people are deliberately challenging them to try to create this chaos as well. But the idea is to try to get justices who are predictable. And that's not always what happens. I think it was Breyer, but I'm not sure. One of the current or recent justices was elected and basically turned out to be a liberal when he was appointed by Reagan. I'm not sure which justice that was. But Roberts turned out to be a surprise as well because he's doing things like upholding Obamacare because of the fact that it was so recently passed and it would create total chaos to the system to overturn Obamacare. But he did it in a way that was politically expedient to the Republican Party by saying, oh, by having to buy health insurance essentially is a tax, which undercut Obama's position saying there would be no new taxes because the Supreme Court essentially declared it a tax. So a lot of times conservatives can come to that type of decision, but there's very frequently seven to two or nine to zero decisions where both the Republican and the Democratic Party would largely get behind a result. An example, although this is like a traffic stop, where you've got a driver and the passengers in the car. 
the question was, are passengers also stopped when you pull over the driver? And the court decided nine to zero that, yeah, the passenger is also stopped because the Republican Party didn't want people to be able to run off and go, oh, gee, you're not stopped because the car isn't here. Oh, you're free to leave. That would create a pretty perverse result. And the other side says, well, the Democrats said, well, yeah, you're pretty stopped. Your, your, your liberty's curtailed. We don't want the government to search you just because, you know, they, they have the authority to stop you. So everyone said 9-0, yes, the, this, you can't object if you're a passenger in a car when the car gets pulled over. Got it. So I think that's a great example of how not every issue becomes a partisan issue. Right. Like especially like in all the in all the discussions that we have about politics and we have these discussions about like drawing lines and stuff, there are some issues that are just not partisan issues or they're made out to be partisan issues and they end up not being in the long term. So I think that's thank you for sharing that example, because I think that's a nice, simple one that people can grasp, but also one that highlights that it's not always, you know, standing on my team. Yeah, I think that's part of what the stimulus issue is right now. The first stimulus got passed because everybody took a bitter pill and compromised on it because nobody was particularly happy with it. Now with the second stimulus, it's not a political question whether we need another stimulus, but the question is who's going to blink first? Who's going to actually say the stimulus? And they're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do here? What do we do? How do we get this meat in the middle? And there just hasn't been that meat in the middle because of the extremists that keep getting elected to Congress because we've gerrymandered all the maps. I don't think when people decided, oh, let's gerrymander the district, so we're going to win all the seats, they predicted that this type of extremist would happen. They expected people to still stay towards the center. But when there's no competition to really be in the center, then the guy from the primary wins who's the furthest to the right or to the left which makes it much harder to talk. And we've seen that since the 1980s. Yeah, as I say, you've seen that divide quite a bit. I mean, you see people get more and more extreme, vote more and more consistently along party lines and not necessarily for, I don't want to say community benefit, but just policies that are going to be generally accepted and approved and supportive of the communities in which they are operating. So it's it's an interesting thing to see how how much the party lines have really become a defining feature of American politics. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's why we need to do something about gerrymandering. And I think if you put it to the people's vote to say, like, each district must be equally shaped with approximately an equal number of people, I think that would get a wide pass. Because right now, what the districts are doing is like, oh, well, there's a lot of urban voters in this area. Urban voters tend to vote Democratic. Let's carve this one out here. And let's carve that particular shape out. And let's make sure all the rural areas are vote Republican rather than actually having fair districts. And what happens when you do that is you get political primaries that are particularly competitive, but you get general elections that aren't competitive. Because you already know that, okay, there's so many people with the Democratic Party line or the Republican Party line where, okay, this district's not really competitive for the Republican. The Republican has to try to run further to the left than his Republican Party or the Democrat has to run further to the right. And it usually doesn't work because of the entrenched identity politics. There has been some talk about how social media and the general media, they just sort of portray their own opinions a lot of the time. I think there's obviously certain outlets that are more guilty of this than others. And then there's a lot of sort of criticizing the one another's groups and platforms. 
I was kind of wondering what what is the time and place for people to sort of have debate and express their opinions in not necessarily a confrontational manner, but in your opinion, what makes sense in terms of having people have an open discussion where they can really share their ideas? Because it seems like everyone sort of found their own echo chamber where they can yell and have everyone agree with their yelling and that the, the platforms that exist have sort of enabled that. I agree that platforms ha- have enabled it, but it's largely not the platforms. It's the fact that we self-select as a society that because of the advent of social media, it's not like back before the internet where you had to get along with people who disagreed with you politically. You had to deal with them in your day-to-day lives. Here we have an echo chamber. You can go to like, oh, you're, let's say if you were actually physically going into a workplace and somebody had different views, you could even just shun them socially, but you still have to get along with them and try to communicate with them. But here we aren't even physically going into work for the most part. You're not having to interact with people who have different viewpoints. So it entrenches, it enables an extremism because you're not actually listening to that other viewpoint. So you get more and more extreme and people basically do gerrymander themselves in a way. Gotcha. I try to listen to the other opinions as well. That's part of the reason I consider myself a Democrat because I try to Say like, okay, yeah, there's a particular point in here with this general concept that we should have a meritocratic society. It's not a pure, gee, we should be a pure near a communist society. I don't think that really works because it doesn't incentivize labor to actually work, to work hard and to actually provide for the people. So just to be clear, you are not advocating for a communist society. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Figured I may as well. Yes, absolutely <laughs> okay. not. I had a couple, a couple more questions, and then we'll wrap up. Again, just be mindful of our time here. And one of them, I think, is an issue that has been a lot larger in the past, and it seems to sort of come through in waves. But is the the issue of sort of immigration and refugees, and what your opinion is on what the government or specifically the United States should policy should be on that topic? Okay, well, this is an area where I'm not as informed, but I know that what we're doing is wrong right now. We shouldn't have people in cages. We should have a system where anyone who wants to apply for asylum can apply for asylum, no making them go apply somewhere else. And then we should accept everyone who wants to apply for asylum. That is actually just looking to apply for asylum rather than just general immigration. Immigration, we should have more legal immigration because right now what you do with illegal immigration is it creates a perverse incentive where Illegal immigrants, well, what are they going to do if they're paid less than minimum wage? They can just be deported and reported. So if all those people were legal immigrants, they'd have to be paid a living wage. Well, not necessarily living wage. They'd have to be paid minimum wage. And the argument is, well, these people do jobs that Americans aren't willing to do. No, they're not. They're doing jobs that Americans aren't willing to do for less than minimum wage. The labor market can't actually enforce its own wage if the companies can bring in illegal immigrants. And you you talk about having a free market for labor. It's not going to be a free market for labor if one side can actually go around the labor market. Uh, That's obviously tied into immigration. And we need to start treating people like they're humans and not just economic dollar signs. And that's part of the problem with immigration is, oh, these people will be a draw in society even though they can't take from public benefits. It's just seeing people as less than, and we can't see people as less than and really hope to function well as a society. 
Cool. One thing I wanted to end on, and I mean, this is maybe, I don't know how relevant of an issue, but I'm, I'm sort of uh, capturing this in the general category of violence. And I've heard some political analysts talk about how the government has sort of, the government has a monopoly on violence. And in a way, maybe not violence, but has a monopoly on coercive power, if you will. And in a way, that's a good thing, because if the government didn't have that monopoly, then people could sort of just take justice into their own hands. And that would be perfectly legal because it would no longer be the responsibility of the government to, to take on that power. And inside of having the government have that monopoly, we've got things like the ability to execute people via the death penalty, to declare war and to fund infrastructure that arms certain citizens and gives them the authority to carry out essentially fatal activities. And I think there's a whole myriad of other categories inside of what you might consider a monopoly on sort of violence that the government has. And so I just kind of want to get your opinion on what should be the government's role with respect to having a control over violence that could include also like proliferating warheads and that sort of thing. Well, I think there's two types of violence that you're talking about coercion. You're saying government has a monopoly on coercion, which just isn't true. There's economic coercion, like you want to be able to do something Great. Let's say I want to negotiate my cell phone plan to have certain things. You really can't do that. You, you have to take what the company is providing you. Same with your internet plan. Yeah, you can take speeds, but you can't say, well, gee, I don't mind being slowed down at these particular hours in order to save money. That You can't really negotiate that with your internet company. There's a lot of contracts of adhesion. You can negotiate the price of your car. But there's a lot of things you can't really negotiate in today's society. And that's, I mean, you could be a skilled negotiator, but you can't negotiate your electric bill. Your electric bill is your electric bill. And there's a lot of coercion that companies can apply, like Amazon and the free market, which is a, still a form of coercion. But to get to your main point on violence, that's part of the reason the police unions need to be changed, is because government should have the control of force. But the people need to be that check on government, need to have checks and balances. The people need to be a check on both corporate and government. Government needs to be a check on business. And business arguably needs to be a check on government as well. The, the three need to check each other. And when that system falls apart, then you get things like right now where the social contract begins to fall apart. Because the government can't use it uh, because you're getting private citizens trying to do the power of the government because they can't check the authority of the police, either how they how they want to, because we've got the police that overreact to black people, underreact to white people doing the same things. And the white people are like, well, gee, we can't control the black people anymore because they're not abiding by the social contract. And the police are saying, well, gee, we can't bully these people the way we want to so we're going to let the white militias go and it's creating a breakdown of the social contract because the people aren't actually able to effectively regulate the police union cool i did want to say that potentially one might argue and i'm not saying that i am necessarily but one might argue that with the coercion from economic coercion as you described from businesses that the government still set, sort of sets the parameters under which those businesses can operate and so therefore sort of sets the limit on on how much and what kind of coercion they might impose. So, for example, you might suggest one might say that a minimum wage is a kind of force that the government can impose on those businesses that would force them to use that. Like that's their only tool for a level of coercion with respect to how much they pay their employees, or they might require them to do 
any number of things. And, and so I think one might argue that the pressure, even though the companies ultimately can have quite a bit of freedom to impose that kind of economic pressure, the parameters are set for them by the government. I think that's partially right, because the government should have that kind of role when the labor market can't negotiate for itself. I do think that that is coercion, that companies wouldn't necessarily pay a minimum wage unless they were forced to. The government acts as a coercion to to be as a check on business. I don't think that their people are necessarily wrong to say, yes, the government is coercing these big companies to do that. I think it's absolutely right, and it's part of the role of government to do that. Because we do have to have a society where people work that they get a living wage. If you work, you should be able to eat. That's even biblical. He who works should be able to eat. I don't remember the quote passage. I'm not that much of an expert on the Bible, but I was just reading it the other day. Cool. This has been a lot of fun. Again, I really appreciate your time and coming on and talking to us today. We generally like to close out with sort of take home points or main main ideas at the end of uh, every one of our discussions. And so I kind of want to leave you with, if you could answer the question, what is the most important issue that you are personally passionate about in politics and government? Okay. The issue I am most personally passionate about is people have the right to live if they work. If you're working, you have the right to live, period, end of statement. Whether that's health care, whether that's a living wage, if, you're work, if you work or are willing to work, you should be able to survive in this country. You shouldn't be able to worry about where your next meal is coming from. You should be able to survive and then let a meritocracy do what it will. Cool. And you've already said it, but just in one short statement, why are you a Democrat? I'm a Democrat because I feel that the Democratic Party, well, my section of the Democratic Party, stands for a living wage, stands for universal health care. It stands for those issues, but it doesn't necessarily stop a meritocracy from forming. It just stops the corporate handouts, which are not a meritocracy. Fair enough. All right. Thanks again for coming on and uh, talking with us about why you're a Democrat. Shane, do you have any other closing thoughts, questions, or ideas? No. I mean, I appreciate you hitting all these topics and and really taking time to talk with us and, and dig deep into this because I think that you know the necessity for more conversation is really apparent these days. So we appreciate you taking the time and, and having the discussion with us for sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. Also, do you have any uh, recommendations that uh, for our listeners in terms of resources they might go learn more about some of these issues? Well, I, th- I think that if you're wanting to be informed about the leftist viewpoint, you should definitely watch the Young Turks. They generally tend to cover the news from a more leftist perspective. The same with MSNBC. If you're looking for more of a moderate type approach, you can go to CNN, although CNN does tend to lean a little more center left because of how Trump demonizes them. CBS, ABC still tend to be a little bit more center. If you want to see more of a Republican viewpoint, definitely go to Fox News for a libertarian viewpoint. I would think going Drudge Report. I'm recommending all of those things because I do think that every once in a while you should check out the opposing viewpoint just to make sure that, yes, this is really what I believe rather than just getting caught up in groupthink hysteria. Perfect. Thanks again for your recommendations. Thanks for your time. I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so that wraps up our interview on why I am a Democrat or why she was a Democrat. I thought that was a lot of fun. I thought she did a really great job um, being very articulate about her um, position. 
And again, I want to stress, we're not endorsing anything, any particular political party in here. We mostly just wanted to have people come on and talk. And, and this is a really great first interview to hear someone uh, just share their opinion. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the rest. Yep, absolutely. So uh, we definitely appreciate her time coming on and, and taking the time to explain this because it's not something that everybody likes to do and really you know, do this in, a, in an articulate way, in a way that is meaningful and really gets the point across without being too attacking of another side. And like it's, it's focused primarily on what our views are or what their views are, I should say, and not what the other person is not. And I think that was a, a really great way to go about this. If you do not agree with this person's political opinion, well, I really appreciate you making it this far and listening anyway. And, you know, stay tuned. Next week, we are releasing an interview that we did with the Republican. And then uh, we'll have the uh, Libertarian Green parties coming out the following weeks. So stay tuned. There is more for you. And maybe you disagree with some of this. That's perfectly fine. If you'd like to let us know about being a Democrat or being a Libertarian or Green Party or Republican or wherever you fall in the political spectrum of anything... Pastafarian. Pastafarian, yeah, absolutely. I think it's more religion, but that's okay. Oh, yeah, um, <laughs> that's, that's a different thing. You're right. <laughs> Please reach out to us on social media. You can, of course, contact us at info at www.wwdpodcast.com. We're really looking forward to hearing from anybody and sharing your views. If you are kind and polite, we may also share your mail on one of our episodes coming out in the future as well. And just as a reminder, coming up in October, we are doing our spooky month of sort of Halloween-y themed episodes. I'm so excited. Yes, it's going to be a lot of fun. So be on the lookout for that coming out in October. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for recording with me today, Shane. Do you have anything else? Nope, that's it. Perfect. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.